Hello and welcome to On The Ledge podcast. This is episode 151, the relaxation episode. This show is a chance for you to sit back, relax, perhaps surrounded by your favourite plants. Maybe go to sleep. It's up to you. But if you're feeling stressed, exhausted, or just in need of some respite from the trials of life, I'm here for you. I'm going to be reading from... The Indoor Gardener by Miss Malling, published in 1863. It's a book about indoor gardening. Some of it may seem very strange. Other parts will be very familiar. If you want to read along with the text that I'm reading, you'll find the link in the show notes at janeperone.com. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, head over to my Patreon feed where you'll find an episode of An Extra Leaf where I talk about some of the visualisation techniques I use to relax and to help me go to sleep at night. So, settle down. Make sure you're comfy. Close your eyes, relax, and listen. Let's begin. The Indoor Gardener by Miss Malling Preface This little work is intended as a very simple but comprehensive guide to room and greenhouse plant growing for the use of those who are not already gardeners and who therefore may wish to find the minutest points explained. It is only a fellow feeling that can teach one to do this and thus the experience of one such gardener is often perhaps more useful here than that of those great men who could never have tried to practice small ways of doing things. The plants which I have treated of in this little book may some of them seem, at first sight, to be too ambitious, but none are included which I have not grown or known to be grown successfully. And even although so many of the plants are most beautiful, they are not, on that account, at all more hard to grow than many commoner flowers of which we now see so much. Two chapters of the present work have already, in great part, appeared in a little pamphlet which is now out of print, and many of the others are also in part reprinted by the kind permission of Dr Lindley from The Gardener's Chronicle, 
in which they have appeared lately. For the 10 easy rules for rose growing, I am indebted to the kindness of Mr. Radcliffe, who gave his own experience in the growth of this beautiful flower, which is indeed always longed for, but seldom at first well grown by amateurs without such aid. Separate chapters, made as full as possible, are then devoted to the growth of roses, fuchsias, carnations, begonias, plant fair, geraniums, Japan lilies, etc. Others contain directions for forcing and retarding lilies of the valley and for growing camellias and azaleas all the year round in windows and in conservatories. There are also hints on plants for boxes and screens for windows, rustic dishes and stands, and baskets of ferns and flowers, and chapters on soil and watering, seeds, cuttings and blight, ways of wintering plants and hints on the construction and arrangement of small greenhouses and conservatories, as well as on the very popular little flower casements common in France and Belgium for fitting up outside windows. The plants mentioned are all selected from those which have been proved by experience to be most easily managed, not one worthless flower being admitted into the list. For the sake of those who are now only beginning to garden, I have preferred risking too great minuteness and explicitness of detail to leaving the smallest points unnoticed, trying to make evident the objects at which to aim, as well as to indicate the readiest means of attaining them. The following description of the frontispiece has been most kindly sent to me by Mr Noel Humphreys, to whom, for his beautiful frontispiece, my little book is so much indebted. And indeed, I must beg its readers not by any means to confine the lesson of that frontispiece to the one group that it describes, as they can, at all seasons nearly, find flowers to represent it. This special group was drawn in April from plants that were then in bloom at Mr Veach's nursery in the King's Road, Chelsea. The flowers are all adapted for growing in a window case, and the two exquisite orchids are notorious for their room growth. Description of the frontispiece. The flowers are those most abundant in conservatories during the month of April. In the front are the glaucous foliage and the orange, yellow and scarlet tints of the Florentine and Van Toll tulips. Their tones of yellow and orange find a background against the complementary tones of blue and purple, furnished by a mass of hyacinths and cinerarias. To the left, azaleas furnish an ascending scale of colour, from a subdued tone of scarlet through pale crimson to a mass of light blush. Above, graceful sprays of Deutzia gracilis terminate the scale in snowy white. On the opposite, or right side, tones of cream colour are furnished by an azalea and a camellia. In the centre, above the purple of the hyacinths and the cinerarias, rise the fine flaky flowers of the orchid Lycast skinneri, one of the orchids which can be cultivated in a living room. The light tones of the lycas flowers help the ascending scale of colour, while their deep crimson markings give energy to the centre of the composition. Behind them, the elegant white forms of the air and blossoms impart an effect of distance and aerial perspective, while a final touch and balance of effect is obtained by the suspended plant of the beautiful Barcaria elegans, the delicate lilac of whose blossoms cannot be imitated by the pigments of art. March 1863 Introductory There are two ways in general of enjoying flowers. 
Some people delight in having them merely for their beauty, others for the real love of them, liking to take care of them and delighting to see them grow. The first tasty is soon satisfied by buying a few plants now and then. The second is still more inexpensive, but here we give time and pains to them, and by noting, as we learn to do, the plants that accord together, those that are easily grown and those that we mostly care for, our enjoyment becomes vastly greater. The poorest and darkest room can thus find some plants to lighten it, and the gayest and gaudiest drawing room can find some to tone it down and touch it with their refinement. In Miss Nightingale's Notes on Nursing, there is abundant testimony against the popular prejudice which regards growing plants as unwholesome. Remarking on the folly of this ignorant and injurious but far too prevalent notion, Dr Linley wrote last autumn in the following terms. Until the prejudice is entirely removed, the fact cannot too often be repeated that, instead of plants vitiating the air, they do a great deal of good by producing a large quantity of fixed air and thus play a most important part in the economy of nature by purifying and rendering wholesome the deleterious air breathed by animals. The principal objection against having plants in a sitting room can only apply to those which have strong scented flowers, such as the night-smelling stock, the tuberose, the narcissus, and even the deliciously fragrant hyacinth, if a large number of them are crowded together in a small apartment. When all this is rightly understood, there is every probability that, with the increasing taste for flowers, parlour gardening will become a far more popular and fashionable amusement than it is at present. Now, what can people want more? To determine what is good for people, they have Miss Nightingale's testimony, and that of many doctors. And here they have heard the verdict on the side of the plant's own nature, limiting exceedingly their powers of doing harm. The flowers, too, to be beautiful, need by no means be numerous, and the more delicate scents are by far the most delightful. A single stand, all covered with large green heart-shaped leaves, mingled with drooping bells of the pink and white ipomia, or morning glory flower, a rustic bark-like frame, filled lightly with red tulips, mixed with waxen snowdrops, a single azalea, outspreading its beautiful lily-like blossoms, even one hyacinth vase, scents and enlivens a room. But I do not want to induce my readers to stop short at any of these. Their drawing rooms may become brilliant and overflow with flowers. There is so much that may be done, and that has been done already. My own indoor gardening is carried on at all times under difficulty. I have for some time had no greenhouse, and yet really many people have often envied my flowers. Last February, for instance, someone asked what flowers had bloomed with me, and the note recording them was in my hands just now. Since the first week in December, I have had a constant succession of narcissi, tulips, scillas, and, for the last month, of hyacinths and snowdrops, without any heat beyond what a cool window gives them, when promoted from cellar floors. My lilies of the valley have grown as fast as possible and are now very beautiful. The orchids too, some beautiful calanthes, with one of the pink limitodes rosea, have been very lovely for a great many weeks. 
Narcisse, a tea rose, had a beautiful blossom open on Christmas Day. Ferns and camellias have been very flourishing, while cyclamens and Chinese primroses have been in constant blossom since the first week of November. As all these things were kept in a mere London sitting room, I think they ought to prove that room plants are not despicable. There is no need at the present time to go over all the arguments to prove that it is possible to grow flowers without a range of gardens. There are now not many houses in which some plants do not find shelter, and every year the gay plant stands and the flower-filled balconies seem to become more numerous. Yellow calceolarias, nasturtiums and red geraniums will scarcely hold very long the post that they took up last year, giving our French neighbours possibly rather a bad opinion of the extent and variety of English decorations. They saw our flowers, however, and the azalea banks and the walls of rhododendrons that glowed for weeks at Kensington, and these will have convinced them that we have at least materials. What is the fate that hangs over plants like these, preventing them so utterly from creeping into our windows? What is the notion that women can't grow camellias and that fine azaleas are something still more difficult? Camellias, in real truth, are hardy things like laurels. Azaleas are assuredly quite as tenacious of life as most of our favourite houseplants. Heaths will be grown as easily, but for their great need of air, which is, in their case, perhaps a really valid difficulty, at any rate, for town amateurs. But perhaps we may in some measure guess the cause for this general backwardness. First, the time it takes for plants to spread is wonderful. Camellias grow slowly and are expensive to buy at first, so that cottage windows are not yet possessed of them. They are chiefly in great conservatories, and people who admire them growing in beauty there scarcely think it possible to transplant them to their windows. Conservatories especially are such grand-looking buildings. People come to fancy them half-essential to find camellias. They do not know or forget that it is chiefly the hardy things that make all this display in the well-filled conservatory. Again, for the camellias, people buy them in bud. They put them directly into the warmest place and then, when the buds fall off, say... Alas, they can't grow camellias. It is the fundamental blunder which treats them as tender forced plants and, even with this conviction, accommodates them with dry air. The amount of atmospheric moisture that there must be in the air for a young, healthily growing plant is by no means inconsiderable. And in a warm, dry sitting room or in a warm but unshaded greenhouse, under certain circumstances, the air is, on the contrary, drained dry as the driest sponge, the dryness being an exact ratio between the heat inside and the cold without. We may utterly neglect the warmth giving if we will but attend to this point, and in a fireless room or in an unwarmed greenhouse where the air can retain some moistness, the beautiful camellias prove that they are at home. The weakness of azaleas lies in their fine, delicate roots, which will not bear drying up kept in double pots, regularly watered and covered with cocoa fibre to prevent undue evaporation, they will grow and flower in the whitest and gayest clusters. And it is very pleasant to feel how one's plant knowledge grows. In treating one plant rightly, we learn how to treat another. We come to generalise rules and perhaps still more to apply them. It is a noteworthy fact that tastes as well as rules simplify. The flowers must be, I think, a very good school in which to study colour harmonies. Every year in which we grow plants, our stands grow more self-tinted. A whole stand full of green, 
with three plants of rose or white, comes at last to seem sufficiently full of colour. If the stand were less large, a single plant might content us. More than one or two colours are perfectly lost for ornament, just as the loveliest trees bear masses of one tint only. In plant treatment, moreover, we learn so much more by experience than by any amount of hearsay. The absolute advantage of watering with warm water, which makes us come at last to regard cold as sheer poison, the scorching and burning tendency of sunshine on frost-touched leaves, and the equal blasting of tender green leaves in cold draughts, the wonders of proper drainage, the benefits of moist air, and at the same time its harm and danger when applied to plants like geraniums, which absolutely require such dryness as will allow their leaves to transpire freely. These things all dawn upon one and become solid capital. At the present moment, let me only add one hint. People are apt to think that plants should be wrapped up at night as warmly as is possible. The real truth is that the heat in which they are should always be proportioned to the degree of light they have, in light days warmer and on dark nights cooler just to keep above the lowest degree of warmth that the plant will bear well at that season ought to be the rule. The sunny days, or the sunny aspects, bringing their due degree of extra warmth from sun heat when light increases with it. The duller days and the more northern aspects having a lower heat appropriate to their shade, and above all, the night temperature being as little raised as possible, consistently, of course, with the safety of the plants, above the colder temperature of the external air. Plants lengthen in heat, but they only increase in light, and many amateur gardeners will do well to remember this fact, as merely lengthening thus is a very bad form of weakness. I now propose to devote some chapters to gardening hints and details, going into minutiae even at risk of wearisomeness, and arranging under each month the plant most striking in it. I shall set down for each a short plan of management, including in the same chapter the aftercare and treatment. It seems to me so tiresome to have to go through a calendar to know all about one plant. Thus, each plant here will have under its chief show month the requisite explanations for its whole year's growth, and often, as in begonias, for its raising from seeds or cuttings. Chapter 10. October. Ferns. There are so many people who are fond of ferns that perhaps it will be well to name a few of those that I have found to do very well in rooms and to look very pretty in the cases there. It ought to be premised, however, that my fern cases are heated or capable of being so, for till this was done, the fronds were often too apt to damp off. And to those who have already got unheated plant cases, I would advise some means, by the use of tin or stone bottles of hot water, of giving a little warmth to change and circulate the air when it gets too damp. The various kinds of terrace and devaliers are among the easiest grown and most pretty ferns when they are not wanted to be very large. Terrace argirea, terrace tricolor, terrace cretica alba lineata. Terrace tremula and Terrace serulata are amongst those at present most thriving in my own room. The argirea and tremula grow extremely quickly and will very speedily mount up to two feet high, putting up quantities of beautiful green fronds, contrasting very well in their dark divided leaves and their wide white striped fronds. Terrace tricolour 
is far more hard to grow. It requires a warm and very light position and is much injured by wet standing on the leaves, which are always discoloured by it. Indeed, it probably does best when the leaves are seldom wet at all. All these plants seem, however, to thrive exceedingly well in these cases, which by being closed at night give a little dew. This dew, however, must on no account whatever be allowed to condense and fall on the leaves. Very frequent watering does not often answer. The moss or sand that fills the box being damp, we may trust a good deal to the dew for refreshing foliage and to the sand for parting with moisture slowly, not therefore watering till the surface begins to be rather dry, except just over the heating apparatus, when it is in frequent use so as to dry up the sand that covers it. In greenhouses, however, or on open plant stands, frequent watering is quite essential to good fern growing. The Devalias, or hare's foot, are most charming plants. I find Devalia dissector, or Devalia decora, answer about the best, and there need be no heat at the roots at all. All my terrace, therefore, I keep at the warmer, and all my Devalias at the cooler end of my case. The Adiantums do best at the warmer end, where Adiantum formosum, Cuneatum, and Capillus veneris grow extremely well. The maiden's hair grows marvellously in coconut stuff, but though it likes at times a moist dewy atmosphere for a time, or a little of the softest syringing, it does not at all like a continued close atmosphere and damps off at once if we persist in giving it. It should be remembered how constantly it grows in perfectly airy places, though under the spray of waterfalls or in the splash of fountains and on the side of cliffs that overhang the ocean. A friend who has lately been botanising in Algeria, told me the other day that one of the most beautiful ways in which he had found this fern growing was when it grew completely round the sides of old disused wells. The fronds there grew large and green, and the waving mass on the wall was wonderful in its rich verdure. The Allosaurus crispus is another charming little fern that grows quite delightfully in a warm shady corner, kept in a small pot, planted in sand and cocoa stuff. I should be almost afraid to say how many new plants were made of mine last year, the little offshoots coming up incessantly. The Denstatia adiantoides is also a first-rate fern to grow, one set of new fronds appearing as the first turn brown and are cut away. This, however, is a large and imposing plant. With ferns, the cutting off of damaged fronds is a very important point, and no slight advantage is the appearance of health maintained by this precaution. Charcoal drainage covered with moss, and then a soil composed of peat, sand and cocoa dust, is perhaps the most generally suitable for all the ferns above mentioned. They can be either left in sunk pots or planted out in a fern case. A means was explained to me the other day of forming a charming, movable border of green moss by planting Lycopodium denticulatum in squares or long strips of peat so that they can be raised or laid down at pleasure. A very pretty plan may also be adopted of lining the walls of ferneries with galvanised wire netting, enclosing peat and soil and forming with growing ferns a perfect wall of verdure. A great many people in London the last year or two have adopted this pretty fashion and I have never heard of its failing. In one case, the Royal Osmond grew out from the green wall beautifully. Persons who have adopted this mossy lining have told me that frequent strong syringing full upon the walls with a syringe so fine as to be quite a dust of water is the most effectual means of keeping the peat moist. 
Great care must be taken to prevent it from ever drying up entirely. Ferns kept in pots or baskets in the dry air of drawing rooms are far more difficult than most other plants to keep well. A good deal may be done, however, by a mossy covering on the soil, which, being damp, itself provides an insensible vapour. In shady rooms, not much dried. In dressing rooms, for instance, I've heard of their living and looking well for years. The beautiful Osmunda regalis has... The beautiful Osmunda regalis has again lived and thriven on a staircase in Eaton Square, growing in a large vase, duly replenished with water. The best chance, however, for the ferns of a London drawing room is when they can be protected from the dry air of rooms in the evening. The extra light, too, is bad for these tender and shade-loving plants. Currents of dry air scorch them up and wither them, and perhaps their best hope is in being kept in damp double pots, protected by moss linings and benefited by frequent, gentle and soft bedewing. The varieties of brake or terrace are among the best suited to rooms, their leaves admitting readily of being fairly sponged. Lastrea dilatata makes a most beautiful centre plant for a fern case group, and the Denstatia adiantoides, though one wishes its name were shorter, is itself perfection for the crown of an autumn fern case. A magnificent plant of this fern was beautiful in my plant case, trained up and waving out, and when it has died down after a time of resting, it grew up again delightfully in another glass shade out of doors. The little climbing fern, Ligodium scandanes, has proved easily grown in the plant cases as long as they are heated. Mine looked very pretty all last spring, summer and winter. Some people indeed may have noticed it, who saw the case it grew in at South Kensington at a flower show. These hints are, however, meant for those who are only beginning to grow ferns, for, with the exceptions of Terrace Tricolor and the Ligodium Scandanes, all the plants I have named here are among those which are most easily managed. Chapter 11. November. Begonias. Begonias are deservedly amongst our most popular plants, both for rooms and conservatories. They grow so fast and so easily they strike from cutting so readily and are so ornamental in growth that they well deserve to be favourites. Many kinds grow from tubers. These are amongst the hardiest and perhaps the pleasantest grown. There is also a long-leaved pink-flowered sort, which is very ornamental from its dark green foliage, just touched with crimson on the stalks and edges, called begonia incarnata. These roots should be planted in four or five-inch pots and put in a warm place, either in a hotbed or in a heated plant case. They come up very quickly if kept warm and moist and make most charming foliage. A magnificent plant of this kind, one spring, used to puzzle me sorely. Its long, green, shining leaves and its panicles of pink flowers looking very much out of keeping as it stood in a milk shop window. The time of year was February, and some large loaves of bread at last appeared one day flanking it. The connection then was obvious. It was the baker's oven that heated some flags or walls, and, profiting by that heat, really splendid begonias grew moisture being provided in some simple way or other. In plant cases, the tubers start rapidly into growth with a few days' heat in spring. Even without such help, I have often got some up by means of a warm chimney piece, and on a greenhouse flue, or over a little stove, 
or near some hot water pipes, or in a mild hotbed, all these sort of plants grow as readily as can be. When the flowers are over and the leaves fall off, it is time to cut down the stem and then the roots retire into the repose of sandbags. In early spring, some flower pots being filled with charcoal drainage, leaf mould, sand and cocoa refuse, the roots are put in again and then they grow very fast. The plants seem in general to enjoy moist heat but a short time. They then take to shade and moisture and very slight warmth indeed, only now and then requiring a good airing and at all times being the better for shade when the sun shines hotly, light making the leaves poor and thin. A greenhouse with due north aspect does best for such plants in summer, and there the scissors discolour is quite beautiful as a climber, especially if it can have a little root heat given it. Many begonias are grown principally for foliage. Rex, Leopoldi, Duke de Brabant, Griffithsia, and Sabrina are amongst the finest I remember having of these kinds. Those which have the leaf stalks and the young opening leaves covered with scarlet threads are perhaps the most effective and most brilliant in their colour. Sabrina is a beautiful, rich, dark velvet leaved thing. Among those grown for flowers are Begonia fuchsioides, Ingramae, and the beautiful Incarnata, the leaves and flowers of which are among the most beautiful. The little satin-leaved Begonia dregii is beautiful too, in its way, although its small white flowers are rather insignificant. Its lovely shape and foliage render it most desirable. I have had it trained to cover the end of a plant case, but as a little pyramid, it is far the prettiest. The two first-named Begonias have most brilliant coral blossoms, a scrap or two of these quite lighting up the plants near them. Begonia fuchsioides has credit for being rather hard to grow, and so perhaps it is in a mixed stock of plants. Where it can have some warmth, entire shade, moisture, and yet not closeness, it grows exceedingly well, making really charming little plants and blossoming well in winter and in the early spring. Begonia ingrammae is not of such pretty growth, but it is a good winter flower also, with bright red blossoms. All these begonias grow from cuttings with great facility. The shorter the roots, the better, and if a branch is broken, each little side spray is a cutting. The cuttings strike best in silver sand and water without any drainage, merely in shallow saucers. The only difficult point is in the pricking out, as the change to soil immediately seems rather too much sometimes. If, however, four-inch pots are thoroughly drained with charcoal and tiles moss-covered, filled with a compost of sand and cocoa refuse, and a small hole prepared in each, the saucer being well soaked again, you can draw out the tiny plants, holding them in the hole. Fill that with dry silver sand. The dry sand fills all crevices, and then a little watering and a few days' shady warmth is quite enough to establish the little plants in their new home. The flower pots destined for young plants or seedlings should always be filled in readiness three or four days beforehand. The soil then has time to settle without sinking the plant. All the fleshier leaved kinds, those whose veins are prominent, will, as a general rule, strike well from a scrap of leaf. Some people put in the whole leaf, but the leaf stalk is least hopeful. Long narrow strips, on the contrary, planted at the edges, have every chance of growing little plants often forming just at the points where the veins meet. They either grow or decay very soon, and if one piece begins to decay, it should be expelled at once. Mildew and damp, indeed, are the chief griefs of begonias. 
always supposing their owners too prudent to let them dry. A continued fog and consequently closed windows, an overwatering and a subsequent neglect of warmth, these are the sort of things from which the begonias suffer. Watering should be done early and always, of course, with warmed water. The leaves keep very clean and do not, when woolly, like wetting, nor is it proper to water them hard overhead. An indoor gardener, provided with some evergreens, might be well content with nothing more than what tubers and bulbs would give from one year's end to another. In summer, ferns and begonias make the most charming groups, and when blinds are kept always close, and geraniums and fuchsias keep falling into the twilight of a London drawing room, the ferns and begonias apparently enjoy the subdued light and moistness as much as do their owners. It is very pleasant also now and then entirely to shut up a glazed case filled with these until dew has formed all over it and the plants are bathed. When it is reopened, the freshness and the verdure is truly charming, and the scent, if we have one sweet thing in it, has gathered intensity like summer flowers after a fall of rain. This plan indeed is only possible in that one way of growth, but by constantly sponging or frequently bedewing, the plants may be very thriving in an uncovered stand, or a muslin curtain drawn over a bay window will often serve to keep in the plant's more congenial atmosphere. Anything to cause slight dewiness is the great thing for indoor gardeners. Their greatest difficulty is always from dryness and want of light. It is thus, I think, that semi-aquatic plants thrive so well in rooms. Lilies of the kind that bear much water, Volota purpurea, which may stand in water, callas also, which are never too wet while growing fast and flowering, Mimulus and begonias under the same regime, with all the other kinds of quick-growing plants, like balsams. The plants that grow so fast as these generally drink much, and the water that they will stand having in their saucers just keeps the pots in a safe state of dampness and fills the air around with a slight and refreshing dew. The begonias, however, add to all these advantages the especial liking for a cool, pleasant twilight, absence at least of sunshine. This makes them most fit for filling the dark Parisian brackets, with which their bright leaves contrast. For this kind of plants, some dark brown sort of case pots are indeed wanted terribly, made without holes, and of some stuff like china, so as not to be porous. Square pots, I think, would do best as affording more space for filling with sand or fibre, or even for planting moss, but something between expensive china and common red pottery is certainly wanted greatly, as much for greenhouse shelves as for our room windows. Holes are undesirable for these outer pots, and the plainer and simpler the colours can be, the better they suit with flowers. Terracotta is rather thick and takes up much room, but its appearance is far better than tile patterns, which are apt to be too staring. I wish that we had in England the dark, carved oak of Paris, which, real or in imitation, provides rough pine sticks crossed into a kind of frame, made up apparently with the bark still on, and really they have, when well filled, a very distingue look. They cost about three shillings and sixpence, and have wires affixed for suspending. In Paris, however, black oak with Rex and Leopoldi in their large dark green velvet leafage and their curves of scarlet must have a deeper and more striking effect of colour.
I'll be back next Friday. Goodbye. The music you heard in this episode was Friends by Jazar and John Stockton's Slow Drag by Chris Zabriskie. The ad music was Whistling Rufus by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. <laughs>